All right. Um, well, we've been in a collection of talks that um, I've, I've kind of titled No Offense. No Offense. And the tagline for each week has been kind of focused around one key idea, one key phrase, which is this. You can be free no matter what they do. You can be free no matter what they do. And it comes out of this reality that every single day um, you are presented with, well, sometimes hundreds of opportunities to be offended. Uh, people never fail to do stupid around you all day, every day. And, um, and many opportunities to, to, to just take it on, on offense. And I, I think the reality and what, we, what we've been talking about is that what we choose to do with an offense is what matters. Um, it will either, if we choose to receive it and let it grow, it will produce a root of bitterness. If you choose to, you know, leave it and not allow it to, to produce that in you, it will produce life and peace. Because when a root of bitterness begins to grow in you, it spreads like crabgrass. I talked about that one week that like crabgrass just grows. You don't plant it. You don't intend. Nobody intends to have a yard full of crabgrass. It just happens. Seeds blow in. People do stupid and offenses will come and the seeds grow into a root of bitterness and that grows fruit, which isn't the fruit you want to eat. It's weeds, which choke out the fruit of the spirit in your life. And so what ends up happening is when all of those offenses come and bitterness sets in, it steals your peace. It kills your joy. It hinders your freedom. And it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. And here's the deal. Like, nobody, nobody plans this. Like, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning one day and is like, I just want to be bitter. Like, I just want to be offended. I want to be cantankerous. I want people to just, like, walk on eggshells around me because just, I'm just, you know, angry at everything. I don't think anyone sets out to be that way. I don't think anyone sets out to, to allow, a, you know, an offense to, to grow into bitterness in, in their own life. But the question that I want to talk about today is, like, if, if it's unavoidable, if offenses come, then, then how do we stay unoffendable? Is it even possible? And so today I want to, I want to talk to you from the subject of your defense against offense. And I believe that you, you probably will be a little um, surprised by, by what it is. So Jesus warned us in Matthew 24 that in the last days, many will be offended. And then in verse 12 of Matthew 24, he says this, because of the increase of, increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. These are, this is kind of Jesus talking about the last days, talking about earthquakes and pestilences and all these different things. Look out for these, these signs. But but in, in the last days, the love of most will grow cold. And we've been talking about offense. But, but how many of you know that when your, your love meter is cold, it doesn't matter what people do to you. You can be ready to bury them in your backyard, right? Because it's like, I'm done. Some days when your love meter's good, you're warm, everything like that, people can do stupid. You're like, that's fine. God bless your, you know. But if somebody does something and your, your love meter is cold, man, you are done. Right? I am done. I'm cutting them out of my life. No more. Right? I don't want to have anything to do with them. I, I, I should have done this a long time ago. Like we, when our love meter is cold, offenses just pile on. And so I've been wondering, like, 
what does it mean for the love of most to grow cold? Like, what is it that Jesus is talking about? Specifically, what does it look like for a Christian to have their love grow cold? And how would you know? How would you know? How would you know if you, your love was growing cold in your own life? And so I was talking to Pastor John this week, and um, we were just, we were chatting about this whole sermon series, and I was like, yeah, it's been really quiet in here. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can, can hear the silence. Um, it's been, it's been an, an impacting, you know, sermon series that you wish I would move on. And, um, and he said this, he said something to me, he said, I, I think that there's a correlation between the love of most growing cold in Matthew 24 and forsaking the love you had at first in Revelation 2. And I, and I heard this, I, I literally, I, I stopped in that moment and I, and I made a note in my phone because I felt that the Holy Spirit said to me, you cannot love others with God's love in your own strength. Let me say that again. I literally wrote this down as he said this. I was like, the Holy Spirit just went, and it said, you cannot love others with God's love in your own strength. And I would add, when you try to, you'll get burned out. You'll get burned out. I, I would go so far as to say this, that if you are not drawing on your relationship with God, then your love is growing cold. Like it's in the process of cooling. Like if you're not, like it's kind of like when you have a pot on the stove, when you, the further the pot is away from the source, the, the heat, the, the eye of the stove, the cooler it gets, right? So if, if what, what if, what if the best defense against offense is coming back to the love that you had at first? Kind of what we were praying about even through this whole worship set. Because when, you're, when your love relationship grows cold, um, so will your ability to love other people. It just, it's just as true. Like you cannot love others with God's love in your own strength. Which means that in the last days, if we're going to take what Jesus said, your relationship with God is the most important thing in your life. And so the question, the question I want us to just consider today, a big, big question is this, like, what is the temperature of your relationship with God? Is it hot, cold, warm, getting warmer? Is it on the back burner? What is the temperature of your relationship with God? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Um, we're going we're gonna to get into that, that portion of Scripture that, that I was talking with, with Pastor John about this week. We're going to be reading what the Holy Spirit had to say to one of the seven churches, um, the church in Ephesus. That's where we find it in Revelation chapter 2. And, and before we stand and read, I just want to give you just a quick little background about the church in Ephesus and, and the city of Ephesus. Um, it was a really impressive city in so many ways. There was a, it was one of the most strategic and significant port cities in the ancient world. And it was known for two things, Ephesus. The first one was that it was known to be kind of like a, a center, a focus on, on knowledge. 
There was one of the most impressive libraries there in Ephesus. It was called the Library of Celsus. Uh, it, had one of the, it was a, one of the top three largest libraries in the ancient world. It was said to held over 12,000 scrolls. It was huge. The second thing that they were known for was a significant prevalence of idolatry in their, in their city. It was, it was known, kind of made famous for the temple of Artemis, and uh, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was huge. It was about the size of a soccer field. It was said to have 127 columns holding it up. Each column was eight feet wide. 127 columns, the size of a soccer field, all dedicated to, you know, pagan worship. It was a huge, huge idolatrous temple, the, the temple of Artemis. So it's in this. The, the, this is where the, the, the people that Jesus is speaking to, this is, this is kind of what is in the mix, right? This is where they live. So as we read, why don't you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 2, this is what the Spirit of God has to say to the church in Ephesus. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, to the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walk among the seven golden lampstands. And then he says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. So God is like commending the Ephesian church. He's like, like you guys, I mean, they, they sound like they're checking all the boxes, right? They're, they're hard workers, they're theologically correct, they've endured persecution, they're hardships, they're tireless. I mean, this is so encouraging. I mean, they're like, man, this is like the perfect church. And then verse 4 says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The New King James Version says, you've left your first love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for just a good reminder this morning. I mean, even in our worship, we didn't even plan it, but like that reminder that we, we just need to get back to what is actually significant. Lord, I thank you for that reminder that every single one of us, no matter what we're doing and all the good works that we are, and that we wouldn't neglect the love that we had at first. Lord, we thank you for that reminder today. May it truly be a defense against offense in our own life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You be seated. So um, I think it's really important to note before we even get into too much that, that that word, he says, that God said that they had forsaken the love that they had at first. That's what it says in verse four. They, you had forsaken the love that you had at first, which means that they didn't lose it, they left it. It's important to realize this. And he's talking to the church in Ephesus. They, they didn't lose it. They left it. They became distracted by other things. They had knowledge. They were good people. They knew the word of God. They worked hard. They persevered. They were tireless. All of these things, those are all good things. It doesn't negate any of those things. But 
they had left behind the very thing that produced everything. Everything. I mean, they were doing good, but they were doing good outside of a relationship with God. It's kind of like, I was thinking about it, um, it's kind of like going on a road trip and leaving your wallet behind. Anyone ever done that before? That's a, that must have been a horrible situation. Anybody? No? Just, nobody's going to admit it. You probably left your phone, but you just turned around and got it. I understand. But actually, I know you're like, well, I could, I could do without my, my, my wallet. You really can't. Like, if you're going on a road trip, it's kind of, it's, it's the most important thing that, that you kind of really need to have. Um, you, can, you can forget a lot of things on a road trip, right? You can forget extra socks, but that's okay. You can, you can buy new socks, right? You just go to Walmart and buy extra socks. Like, you can, you can forget your underwear. That's okay. You can get, like, you know, four days out of one pair. It's... <laughs> Inside out, front to back, inside out again, four days. We know this. We know this to be true. You all know this. I don't, I'm, not, I'm preaching to the choir. I know. Um, that is gross. We've all done it. Um, or at least I have. Okay, um, moving on. Point is, you can get by losing and, and, and leaving behind a lot of things. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We can talk about this later. Um, but forgetting your wallet... Is a bit different. Like the thing about forgetting your wallet is like in the beginning, you can, you can begin the road trip just fine. Um, you can actually leave your house. You can get on the road. You can drive for hours. But there will come a point where all of a sudden you realize that you left the most important thing behind. And what, what I mean by that is that like you don't have the ability to fill up with gas anymore because you don't have your, your card or your money. Like you... Um, you can't buy food to sustain you for your journey. Like, in fact, driving without a license, if you got pulled over, you could actually be arrested. I mean, this is kind of like a, kind of a big deal. And I think this is why the Spirit of God um, is so serious about this to the church of the Ephesus. And I think that's why the Spirit of God is so serious about this to you. Because, because trying to be a Christian um, without staying connected to Jesus is like going on a road trip without your wallet. Let me say that again. Trying to be a Christian without staying connected to Jesus is like going on a road trip without your wallet. It's kind of silly. It's kind of silly. And the Apostle Paul reminds the, the church in, in Colossus the, the same thing. He says this in Colossians 2.6. So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So just as you received him, continue to live in him. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 4, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain. In me. And I would say this. I think, I think this is to the church in Ephesus. I think this is to the church of New Life. Like, make sure in all of your busyness of doing good and, and being right and doing good and right things, like, you don't neglect the most important thing. Staying connected to Jesus. Because, like, my concern, like, as, as your pastor, my concern for, like, even not just our church, but the church, 
is that this could very well be a sobering snapshot of the American church. And my question is that, like, has the love of most grown cold because we've forsaken the love we had at first? Could it be that, 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 that we're attempting to do in our own strength that which can only be possible through the Spirit? And that's why we burn out. That's why we spin out. That's why we see these leaders fall. Like, again, nobody sets out to do this. Like, nobody, nobody's like, oh, yeah, one day, you know, I, I got this. I'm just going to, you know, I, I, I got saved and, you know, God did a huge work in me, but now I'm just going to try to do it in my own strength. Like, nobody, nobody thinks that. No, nobody sets out to do that. I think we get pickpocketed along the way. I think that's more what happens. And one of the greatest enemies that will steal your wallet is pride. Pride. Pride is so stinking sneaky. And spiritual pride is the sneakiest kind of pride. I'm, I'm just telling you, like Christian pride, <laughs> man, we can really like, like make it look real nice. We can party it up real nice. But at the heart of it is, is, is pride. Because we rarely will see in ourselves the moment where we took Jesus out of the driver's seat and made him ride shotgun. We rarely see that. Like in, in our own lives, like in our own like following of Jesus, we rarely see when we be, start beginning to trust in our own contrived righteousness rather than trusting completely in the righteousness that we only receive through abiding in him. We start thinking like, have you seen what I do, what I give, how I serve, who I am, how good I am, how right I am, how much I know of my Bible? Like all of those things begin to, our contrived righteousness, thinking that it ascribes some value that, my goodness, is rubbish, Paul says, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And... I think so many times it's easy to fall into the trap, just like the, the church in Ephesus did, like trying to accomplish in the flesh that which can only be accomplished through the Spirit, and in the end realizing that the tank is empty and I left my wallet at home. I'm, I'm, I'm without the very thing that produces everything. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus talks about this. He gives like a parable. It's like a, a little story about two men um, it's an amazing snapshot of the ugliness of, of spiritual pride in our own life. It's about two guys, and they're going to the same place for the same reason. Um, they're both going to the temple to pray. And they couldn't be more different, though, these, these two people, because one's a good guy and one's a bad guy. The good guy is a Pharisee, and the bad guy is a tax collector. And Jesus tells a story. I'm going to read it for you. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He says, it says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So he's, we know why he told the parable. Verse 10, two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, good guy, other a tax collector, bad guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, 
stood at a distance and he wouldn't, not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this, I mean, this is just the story that Jesus tells of these, these two guys. And the question that I have is like this. If, if the love of many can grow cold by the sickness of pride, then what are the symptoms that we should watch out for? How would we know if this was an issue in our own life? And I think that the first thing he says in verse 9, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. My first point is this, that spiritual pride will always cause you to look down rather than look up. Spiritual pride will always cause you to look down rather than to look up. C.S. Lewis, um, kind of a smart guy, mere Christianity, he wrote this. A proud man is always looking down on, the thing, on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. When we become confident in our own righteousness, then God moves from being the Lord of our lives to a great consultant in the sky if we need him, when we need him. And we rarely do. It begins to start to shift, even in the life of a believer, when we start to trust in our own righteousness rather than realizing that our only righteousness is staying connected, abiding, remaining in the vine, staying connected to Jesus, pulling from that relationship with God rather than trying to, uh, I'm going to love with God's love in my own strength and get burned out along the way. He says, stay connected. Keep on the burner because it's the very source through which you can actually do this thing that we call following Jesus. In verse 11, he continues. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. And I was thinking like, spiritual pride always creates a false reality in which we're always the center of everything. Like everything kind of boils down to like, what's going on with me? I, 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 this guy, I mean, literally he's praying, but he's by himself and he's speaking out loud and he's praying by himself. And this is how pride snuck in with Lucifer in the very, very beginning, right? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 said, for Lucifer said in his heart, look at how many times the word I is written in there. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And it was his pride that got him cast out of heaven. And the question is this, like if pride can turn an angel into a demon, what can it do to you and I? How much more do, should we be on guard of spiritual pride in our own life? Because when you realize that it's actually pickpocketing you, stealing your wallet, robbing your peace, and stealing your joy, all of a sudden you realize that, man, my greatest defense against offense is to stay close to Jesus, to come back to the love that I had at first. He goes on and says this in verse 11. This is his prayer. This is the, the Pharisee's prayer. God, 
I thank you, and I feel bad for the other people that were probably in the room. I thank you that I'm not like all these other people in here, robbers, evildoers. Evildoers are like, seriously, dude, call me out? Like, adulterers. Like this, especially like this tax collector guy in here. I, I thank God, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these rack of people that are sitting next to me. I am so much better than them. And we'd never say that out loud, right? I mean, like this guy has the guts to just like say it. But the thing that I know about spiritual pride is that spiritual pride will replace your compassion for people with comparison with people. Because it's so much easier to just categorize people. You're bad and I'm good. Because I'm never going to be the bad guy in the situation. I'm never going to be the villain. You're the villain. I'm the hero or the victim. But I'm never going to be the villain in this story. And spiritual pride will always falsely remind you that God created you just a little bit better. A little wiser. A little more committed. Right? A little better looking than the people around you. I mean, let's just be honest. You are. Look at the people next to you. Spiritual pride always kind of puffs itself up. And if we're not on guard with it, then we can become so complacently pleased with ourselves that we look down our noses at others rather than allowing our hearts to break for them. And it's so sneaky. It's so sneaky. And we just don't see it. In verse 12, he keeps going. I mean, he, he doesn't, he, he, first of all, he throws everybody under the bus. And then he says in verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Make sure everybody knows, right? Because pride will always show itself by who is being glorified. Pride always shows itself by who's being glorified. Here's the thing. I don't think the Pharisee was trying to be evil. I mean, he was doing good things. He was doing holy things. Like, that's great. He was fasting twice a week. Awesome, dude. I have a hard time fasting once a year. Like, that's awesome. You're giving a tenth of all you get. Like, that's an amazing discipline. Absolutely. You're tithing. That is great. I don't think he's trying to be evil. He's trying to do the right thing. But all the while was blind to the overthrow that was rising up in his heart to dethrone God and make himself king. And not seeing it for what was really going on. Because, because when our glory is threatened, our pride is exposed. And offenses gain power when our pride goes unchecked. And then you look at the, the sinful and despised tax collector. Look what he says in verse 13. This is what he prays. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. I mean, he knows, he knows he's not worthy. He knows that like, he's got nothing to offer. He knows that his righteousness is rags compared to what God is offering him. Like, he's not coming in being like, hey, check out all these other people that I'm so much better than. And by the way, have you checked out all the things that I do? Because take a look at this. He's like, I got nothing. I, I, I got nothing. I mean, I, I, I got nothing if I don't have this. I got nothing if I don't have this. And he just comes in, and this is what he says. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beats his breast, and he says, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. Like, he's just glorifying 
the God who he knows his only righteousness comes from. The proud Pharisee glorifies himself. This, this sinful, despised tax collector, like, glorifies God. Because spiritual pride will always morph Christianity from a relationship that we enjoy to a belief system we adhere to. Let me say that again. Spiritual pride morphs Christianity from a relationship that we enjoy into a belief system that we adhere to. It dumbs it down. It dumbs it down into right thinking, right actions, right behavior. This is what God likes. This is what he doesn't like. Do this. Don't do that. Rather than enjoying the relationship that you get something you don't even deserve. And being right rarely causes you to love people better. I'll tell you that right, up, right off the hand, right? Because when we start feeling like we're right, man, we just get a little bit bigger. Come on. I'm not looking to you with love because I know I'm right. Like when I'm right, I'm not humble. Like being right actually inhibits me sometimes to love other people because I start to get prideful about it. And when we're not careful... We'll think that Christianity is something that we believe in rather than the very power of God that sustains us. You may get offended about that, but I mean it. If we deduce Christianity down to a list of things, a statement of beliefs, rather than the very power of God that saved you from eternal hell and literally gives you the breath that sustains you today, like if we deduce it down to just do's and don'ts rather than a, a vibrant living hope that we sing about, please, you, we are sorely mistaken. It's so much more than that. And... And I think that what the Spirit of God was saying to the church at Ephesus is worth us listening to. Like, hey, look, you're doing great things. You're doing awesome. And you know what? Like, you got the right preachers in the pulpit. You, 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 you're, you're doing all the right things. You got the right books on the bookshelf. You're doing awesome. Thank you for, for just persevering and being tireless and serving and working hard and giving and doing all of these right things. But, but don't forget the very most important thing. To stay connected to Jesus. He wasn't confronting them, telling them that they were doing things wrong or criticizing them for not doing good works. He was saying like, hey guys, you forgot what this is all about. You left your wallet at home. I don't know how far you think you're going to get here. You got to go back and get your wallet if you're going to do this over the long haul. Because if you think that you can love people in your own strength with God's love, you're sorely mistaken. He's saying you've forsaken the love that you had at first. And their love was growing cold and they had to go back and get it. And so how, how, how do you get it back on track? I love, this is what, this is what the, the scripture says in verse 5. He gives you the pathway back. He says, Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So three things. Remember, repent, and redo. Remember, repent, and redo. But look what he says after this. If you do not repent, 
I will come to you and remove your lamp, your lampstand from its place. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I just think it's probably not a good thing. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure those of you who study Revelation, you're like, well, let me tell you exactly what this means. I'm just telling you it's not good, right? This was not a little, hey, guys, look, you're doing a great job. There's just some things I want you to work on here. Like, this is just some, not big deal. Just kind of, you know, if you could brush up on this, it'd be great. No, like this is serious stuff. The church in Ephesus was in danger of losing its light. And I feel like the, the word of the Lord today is this. When the church loses its love, it will soon lose its light. When the church loses its love, it will soon lose its light. Which means... Which means that the church can be doctrinally sound and sound to the world like a ringing gong and a clanging cymbal. It's possible to be right and still be in the wrong. That's, 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 that's the crazy part. When the church loses, it's love, it will soon lose its light. So how do we get back on track? What this love that we had at first, the first thing he says is remember, he says, consider how far, how far you've fallen. I think it's interesting, I didn't even plan this, that it's, today's 9-11. We were talking about it in prayer this morning, like if you're, if you're over, well, you, let's say you're in your 30, right? You're 30 years or, or older, you remember where you were when the Twin Towers were hit. Like, I can remember where I was, who I was with. I remember the TV that I was watching it on. I remember the conversations I was having. I remember, I, I, it can bring me right back to 9-11. And if you're like 30 or older, like you, you remember that day. Like it was yesterday. And, that, and I tell you, it was 21 years ago. You're like, no way. No way was that 20, I, Feels like it was like a couple years ago. Like, no way was that 21 years ago? Are you kidding me right now? And I think that like what, what the Spirit of God is, is speaking to the church in Ephesus, and I think that if, if we were to take our cues from what, what the Spirit of God is speaking, what would it look like if we just lived with that ever-remembrance of what it is that God did in our life. Like, what, did it, what would it look like if you just lived with this remembrance of like, man, I remember the first time I met Christ. I remember the change that he made in my life. I remember whether that was when you were baptized or in kids' ministry and you prayed a prayer with a kids' worker, whether that was last week, whether you came down to an altar of, altar of prayer and like gave your heart to the Lord. Like, what would it look like if we lived in that continual remembrance like it was right there? of what it was that God saved you from and where you were when you met him. It would change everything. To remember how far we've fallen, to remember where we were. What's the temperature of your relationship with God? Remember where you were when you first encountered him. Because there's a difference between following Jesus and drawing near to him. 
And I'm not saying you're not following him. I'm just saying, when was the last time you actively journeyed to him? And then the second thing he says is repent. He literally just says that word, repent. And it literally means to turn around, to walk in the opposite direction, to, to don't just remember where you were, but start intentionally making space in your life to get there, to get back there. Because nothing breaks pride like repentance. Come into the place of like, man, I got nothing if I don't have this. Like, I got nothing if I don't have this. When was the last time you just stripped away all of your stuff and your good works and all the things that you've done, the, the, the years of things of serving and giving and being devout and doing, and just been like, ah, I got nothing if I don't have this. If I don't have this, I left my wallet behind. The very connection that is, is worth everything in me. Stripping all those things back. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23 I'm going to read it in the message paraphrase. It says this, pride lands you flat on your face. Humility prepares you for honors. I've never met somebody who tripped when they were on their face before God. You just don't. When, when, when you're at a place of humility and just submitted to God on your face, you don't trip. You don't fall. You don't, you don't fall into sin you don't, because you're there. You're, you, are, you are so close to him. I just want to encourage you, like, just be real with him because he can't heal who you pretend to be. He can only heal who you truly are. Yeah. Just be real. God, I, I want you. And when I don't want you, I want to want you. I want, uh, you ever been there where you're like, I, I kind of, I, I, I don't have it in me, but I want to want to have it in me. Work, heal me. Strip away those things in me. Why don't you stand with me? The last thing he says is, uh, and this is kind of the heartbeat of, of the message today. And the third thing is redo. He says, do the things you did at first. So how do you get back? You remember, consider how far you've fallen, repent, and then do the things you did at first. What were some of the things you did at first? Go back to when you first encountered Christ, right? Go back to when, you, like, I mean, God was just moving in your life and you didn't care what people thought. My goodness, you, you had this newfound relationship with God and it was vibrant and hot and amazing. And people could try to offend you and they would, it didn't, who cares, right? What were some of the things you did at first? It's kind of like a marriage. I've been married for 22 years. Um, and if you've been married for any length of time, you, you know this to be true. Like as you add years to your marriage, life happens in those years. And not all of it's dandy, right? Life happens over 22 years. I've been with my wife now longer than I've been without her. And that's a crazy, we hit that milestone, right? Like, I'm 43 years old. I've been married for 22 years. Like, I'm, I've been with her more years than I've been without her. And as you add years to your marriage, life happens, and it's full of victories and frustrations. It, it's full of grief and happiness. It's full of, of loss and blessing. It's full of offense <laughs> and intimacy. It's full of, of raising kids 
and, and jobs and working and, and paying bills. And it is so easy to stop doing the things you did at first. But if you've been married for any length of time, think back. Man, you dated each other all the time. I, I'd get my paycheck. I would just, I'd spend it all on her. I still do. <laughs> Some of it I don't do willingly anymore, though. That's what combined bank accounts do to you. <laughs> but like, man, like, think back. Like, you spent every possible moment together. And when you weren't together, they were all you thought about. Your friends rolled their eyes at you because that's all you could talk about. But like, do you have anything else to talk about other than her? Other than him? Like, you stop. You used to do things that you didn't want to do, but they really enjoyed doing. And you did them anyway because you just enjoyed them. Remember that? Like, you just like, yeah, I don't like that, but I do like them and I want to spend time with them. Like, we used to go to the grocery store together because we wanted to spend time together. Please, are you kidding me? And those of you who are newlyweds, you're like, we still do that. Oh my God. Now we're like drawing straws. Who's going? Who's going in, right? I'll take it for the team. Right? And you just go in there and you get it done, right? But we're not like, oh my gosh, it's so great. Oh, do you like chunky or creamy peanut butter? Oh, me too. Nobody does that anymore. 22 years in, I could care less. Just get the stupid peanut butter. Let's be honest. And couples find themselves with their love grown cold. And what would happen if we decided to do the things we did at first. And my question for you today is this. I think it applies to marriage, but I think it, I think it also applies to our relationship with God. What if we did the things that we did at first? What if, what if this was our defense against offense? Because we rarely care so much about what everybody else thinks about us when we know what God thinks about us. And when you're spending time with Jesus, the offenses just kind of hit, but they got no place to stick. Like It's like, I'd love to just get mad and all upset and worry and talk to everyone else about you and how stupid you are and all the things. I just, I don't care. You can go and do all that. I, this is just so much more important. Like if, if I don't have this, I got nothing. I got nothing. So I would encourage you as we sing this song, like if you've left your wallet at home, <laughs> go back and get it. Do the things you did at first. And allow God just to bless you again, to speak identity and destiny over your life again, <laughs> to rekindle that, that love and excitement. Man, like you just couldn't wait to just get into your word and to pray and like get into, get into worship. My gosh. Lord, I just repent for the times when our heart has grown cold. 
God, I ask that even as we sing here today, that you would just remind us, bring us back. Help us to remember. Help us to remember. And then help us to just begin to start doing and making space in our lives to do the things we did at first. Lord, we thank you. (laughs) Because if we don't have that, we got nothing. Lord, we thank you that you continually tell us to remain in us, remain in you, remain in you, remain in you. May we remain in you. Let's sing together.